Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, November 8th. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. All right, Sunday, November 8th. We're Election week. We have Election. a new president. Well, there's a new administration, and all I can say is congratulations to Steve Cohen, the new owner of the New York Mets. <laughs> I mean, it's a clean who, sweep. Who, who did what the new guys can do, fire everybody. He fired everybody. There's a clean sweep, a cleaning house. And uh, we look forward to see uh, what the new administration brings to us. And so you're waiting for uh, some representative from the team to reach out to you? There's a lot of... There's, there are openings. Of, there's a groundswell. There is... I have friends who have uh, told me that uh, there's now an opening for me that I should expect my phone to ring. And I just hope they have my cell phone. Did number. the openings go that far? I mean, all the way down to janitor or Oh, my you? goodness. Tamsin, I would only get in at a high level. Really? Although I will say, for the benefit of everybody who might have a role in this decision-making, my salary demands are flexible. It's not like I'm not looking to make my mark money-wise here. It's enough that I make other people happy. That's the point I am in life. Right. And uh, my fans have a lot to look forward to well, if I'm brought on the team. I, I guess as we use, if we use your law school professor salary as a base, you're pretty affordable. <laughs> I'll be paying them. There's no question about it. So, uh, Halloween, uh, you know, was last week. And yeah, we it, talked about Halloween. Already. I know that, but I was concerned, as I'm sure you were too, about how the candy companies uh, were doing because uh, Halloween was muted this year. And you figure a lot of them count on candy sales in October to sort of get them over the top. No, yeah. I, I sort of figure like people are eating tons of candy. Well, like they're stuck at home. The kids are going crazy. Anything to shut them up. Well, give them some candy. It, it turns out you're right. I'm sorry to say, but... Uh, <laughs> Although I think you were, uh, you anticipated where I was going with this. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal about Hershey, uh, which says uh, in the very first paragraph, although they failed to follow up on this, that it gained ground in the U.S. candy market recently because it adapted to changing uh, consumer behavior during COVID, in part by making more chocolate bars for s'mores. Yes. Uh, and, and I got to say, we're right there with them. We are. We I, have we been are, having campfires. They should be doing their test marketing and, here. Yes, and we have been making some mores. We have been making some mores. And well, there, it turns out there are no secrets in this world. Hershey's is on to this. Um, but here's my problem. Yeah. I mean, we, we pretty much stopped eating Hershey chocolate in general. Yeah. Because it doesn't seem to have much chocolate. It's kind of awful, honestly. But I mean, it tastes fine in a s'more. Yes. Okay, but you, you know, can't just really eat it. It, 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 it just tastes like wax. We're, we're not talking about food here. We're talking about commerce. This is commerce. Okay. And the ability of a commercial company like this to, to observe back. trends and to follow. So here's what they did. They actually tracked where uh, COVID-19 case counts were spiking. And sent more product to those areas, anticipating it will be a stay-at-home situation. And the one thing people are going to need in that situation were Hershey <laughs> candy bars. And that worked out for them. That worked out for them. There are a lot of other subtle things they did, which are so less So those of us who can get out and shop yeah. are going to buy something else. Something better. <laughs> something better or just not eat candy. But if there's COVID around, uh, it's Hershey's old way. Uh, and uh, they also were clever about Halloween. Because, again, it's the stay-at-home eating, the s'mores, whatever. So instead of investing into candy you give out at Halloween, it was uh, stocking bags geared more toward families eating candy at home together. Apparently, you market that differently, you package that differently, and it paid off for them. I don't even know what that means. I don't either. But I think a lot of this is made up, honestly. It makes them look like geniuses. In other words, in other words you're buying the good stuff. 
for yourself. As, as no, opposed to the random cheapo yeah. uh, miscellaneous bags Hershey's that you're going to hand out to no the kids. There's no good stuff with Hershey's on the label, honestly. I, I don't well, think there is. But here, here's what's interesting. Some Hershey's is better than others. Is that right? Yeah, right. And especially in the eyes of the kids. special bars or something like that? No, no, no. I'm just... Well, you know, chocolate is, you know, I'm I'm not a real candy expert. Well, just to just to put uh, be as precise as possible, Hershey's also owns Reese's and Kit Kat, so we could get into. No a wonder Reese's discussion. don't quite taste so good anymore. Is it, do you think that's Hershey's? Fault? I think they've lost some flavor. That's possible. That's all. That's but time. maybe they're just trying to spread the ingredients. Another podcast to make you. more for more people. So, in any event, here's something interesting in terms of their universe of candies. They are getting hit by the coronavirus in some areas. The company said its gum and mint retail sales plunged 19% as social distancing reduced demand for breath fresheners. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. You, uh, uh, especially if you're on Zoom, you don't need you to worry what your breath is Apparently, like, there right? have been people who have been eating mints so they could be with other people. And conversely, if you don't have to be with other people, they're not eating mints. You know, this is a very complex business. I had no idea. So, uh, kudos to the Hershey's people. Whether they make good candy or well, not, we root for Hershey's. Hers- it's a uh, Pennsylvania business. Oh, is that right? Yeah, Hershey's Hershey, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah, I, I thought they might have something. Milton Hershey. Oh, please! Now you're embarrassing me. I don't know anything. The Milton kids Hershey's. and I have been to Hershey Park. Yeah, how was it? It was very hot the day we went. Oh, well, they've done something about it recently. I think it's it really it's yeah. not that hot anymore. Not that hot. Although I have to say November. the weather here has been spectacular. Fantastic! It's been great. You know, I will say this: I don't want to get into politics too much, but here's something that's been underreported about uh, Trump. Apparently, over the last five days, he's played golf every day. He's playing golf today. So I'm saying to myself, that makes me feel better. I mean, you know, there's this notion that he's a mad scientist, basically, but he's out in the fresh air. He's playing golf. Uh, you know, he's not worrying about what happened in, uh, you know, Pennsylvania. He's saying, is this putt going to break right or left? Uh, you know, good. All right. So the next. Okay. I thought you said putts, but you said putt, right? Okay. Yeah. All right. Hoof. Okay. Hoof. <laughs> Hoof. All right. Let's get to our main story because you came up with something. I, 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 I don't know. Say, this, this is not the main story. I'd say you just... unearthed something, which I thought oh, was wow. momentous. Wow. Go ahead. Um, headline in the. The uh, trilobite section of the New York oh, Times. The trilobite section. Yes. Uh, ancient remains in Peru reveal female big game hunter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in Peru, uh, in the Andes Highlands, somewhat south of uh, Lima, actually, mm-hmm. uh, they dug up a bunch of skeletons. And? Okay. As they do. And as one, does, uh, right? one of them and turned out to be 9,000 years old, mm-hmm. uh, surrounded by various hunting implements. The full okay. kit, as you the describe The full kit. It. Yes. The hunting uh, kit. The official kit. Big game hunting kit. Right. Okay. And when analyzed, turned out that skeleton, 9,000 year old skeleton, was female. Female I mean, hunter, they, they dug it up and they said, "This, you know, oh look at, th- look at this kit. Mm-hmm. This has got to be some big deal, mm-hmm. some big chief. He must have been quite oh, important. Boy, Seventeen to nineteen year old female. Oh, there's a word for this. It's a huntress. Huntress. Okay. okay. And uh, so this has gotten people excited. Uh, turns out there are more sophisticated ways to analyze uh, um, male versus female." 
in uh, skeletons that are that old uh, in I, this day and age. I wasn't age. going to ask. But so I anyway, there is. so yeah. so uh, um, the um, this guy went back, Randy Haas from yeah. U of uh, C Davis, uh, went back and looked at uh, data about uh, skeletons from this period in the Americas that were dug up and uh, whether they were male or female and whether they were associated with any kind of, you know, hunting implements in the burial. And uh, he ascertained of the 20 odd that they came up with, Mm -hmm. right, almost 50% were female. How do you like that? So that old trope, Mm -hmm. you know, the hunter gatherer it's already the old you know yeah. uh, division of labor right, in uh, prehistoric times yeah. that the men go out and hunt yeah, yeah, and the women yeah. forage about and gather, and gather yeah. uh, may not be true well there's only one problem with that what? is there any evidence of men gathering well, <laughs> i don't know if the gatherers were uh, buried with the gathering crit <laughs> Kit, uh, so to speak, with shopping but, carts. But anyway, yeah. um, uh, you know, uh, uh, other right. other experts are saying it's not really clear that all these uh, well, how skeletons so? he's assigning um, hunting mm-hmm. uh, as a definition of their skills or whatever. Uh, Assigned as hunters, it's not clear huntresses. Hunters, right? It's not true. Well, it's nine thousand years old. How could it be clear? It's not going to be clear. No, right? but uh, there's but evidence that it's kind of a big leap from finding one. More of the hunters. We should be kind of excited to find at least one. Well, it's probably more than one. Seventeen-year-old, yes. big game. When I mean big game, oh, okay. I don't what, mean like. What you do know, you mean? <laughs> I don't mean uh, giants. Like, Washington. Know. You no, mean something no. bigger than that? No, it's like deer. Okay. Yeah, that's not big game. Well, that's pretty big. Isn't it? Well, it's not like uh, possum. Moose would be bigger. I don't know if they ate moose. I don't know if they grow moose in Peru, to be honest. But anyway, so that's the news about that. All right, we're learning okay. you know, more and more well, every day. This is a theme that I want to pick up on, which is the... Uh, you know, the girl power. Girl All power. right, I didn't know this was a special girl power edition. It turns out it is. And Dan. You have several things in here, and I wanted to contribute to that because I wanted to note that we're watching The Queen's Gambit. And The Queen's Gambit is a show on Netflix about a young woman who becomes a chess champion. I don't want to give it away for you, Tams. We've only seen a couple of episodes, but she actually develops into an international figure, I understand. Right. And it's based on, uh, it's based on a novel. Uh, by Walter Tevis, which was written in the early 80s, directed by someone named Scott Frank, and the stars a woman named Anya Taylor-Joy. She's very good. And it's it, it's got fantastic reviews. It's uh, Rotten Tomatoes is 98%. Uh, I like it. I don't think it's fantastic, but I like it. You might like it a little less, but it's kind of interesting. And it is very much along the same theme, the notion of an unexpected source a woman, a woman with a very, you know, sketchy background, not sketchy so much, but she doesn't have that much education. She's not from a wealthy class or anything, and she gets no encouragement whatsoever. And yet she rises to the top in this male-dominated field, namely chess competition. Yeah, but I mean, it, it is made up. It's fiction. It's a, it's a novel. Okay? Yes. And if anything, the, our, the last article we read about it uh, surmised that it's kind of based on uh, Bobby Fischer. 
and right. his career. Right. And uh, he was a great hater of women in chess. Yeah, well, they, they, some and people so it was kind of like, desserts. take this, Bobby. Um, uh, but yeah, I, you know, um, not my favorite. Not my favorite at all. Uh, but, uh, but I like it. I'll just say I think I like part it. of the problem is I don't know anything about chess. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting there kind of following along following and saying, aha. Uh-huh. And I'm going, oh, when will the chess part be over? Uh, all right, well, so, uh, you know. It. There is that. Now I'm not following the most. And, you know, truthfully, if it if it gets too dark, it's a little on the dark side. It is a little. There's a little drug use issue it, there. Yeah. And uh, frankly, they said, the, the article we read also that was by somebody who, was by a grandmaster? Or it was by I, somebody I with real experience right. in uh, chess tournaments, et cetera. He said, uh, the way she uses drugs to help her it's, it's in, the, uh, in yeah. her uh, matches... Wouldn't work at all. You know what was funny, though? Chess comes up in an odd way. We were watching in the uh, NFL pregame, and I think everyone should understand that the the big fan of the NFL pregames, you are the big fan, not me. So you're studying the NFL pregame show, and they have a piece on a fellow named Kyler Murray, who is the second-year quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals, who's quite the rage right now, very successful. And uh, Phil Simms is doing the interview, and before you know it, they're talking about chess. It turns out Kyler Murray... Uh, who this rough and tough football player, um, it's like the second coming of Michael Vick, turns out to be totally into chess. And he says he plays chess every day. Yeah. And he got into it in high school. He said, everyone, you said, oh, you're a big athlete. You guys don't do stuff like that. He said, but we did. So you never There know. you have it. There you have yeah, it. Yeah, I'm not against chess. Yeah. And I, I imagine it's a great way to learn strategy and learn discipline and learn to use your brain. Flex that brain muscle. Um, if anything, I'm embarrassed that I don't. Oh, don't be know nervous. anything about chess. But I did. I so every time we watch that series, I just feel embarrassed. Oh, don't be silly. Uh, yes, but I'll, I'll, it gives me a chance to tell you about my exploits on the chess team in high school sometime. Uh, but anyway, continuing along on this theme, we you have what I think is a more interesting story. Really. The woman who built Beethoven's pianos. Yes. Okay. Turns out her name was Nanette Stryker. Well, the article's a little bit of a stretch, okay? Beethoven uh, didn't uh, solely rely on her pianos. But uh, in any case, it's a great story. It's a fantastic story, okay? It's about this woman who uh, grows up in Germany. Her dad is a famous piano maker. Mm-hmm. She starts out playing the piano. Mozart hears her play and says, well, when I mean, she's like eight. And he says, well, she grimaces, you know, she's okay. Um, but she doesn't go anywhere with the piano playing. She becomes a piano maker in her father's firm. When her father passes away, she, and I think she's married by then and has kids, she moves the business with her her younger brother to Vienna, okay, and uh, they work together for a while, but they have differences about how pianos should be made, mm-hmm. um, and uh, eventually they split up, and uh, she has this great business, mm-hmm. and her husband works for her. Mm-hmm. He's the bookkeeper. He's the sales guy, but for a long time, uh, the way the story was told, she was working for him. Uh, which is just really kind of funny. They had a great showroom. They had a large uh, venue attached to the showroom to have um, performances, to 
promote their product, mm-hmm. uh, which seems very savvy uh, for the 19th century. And uh, anyway, she did sell pianos to Beethoven. Not only did she make pianos for him, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, they, they had a whole ongoing thing because he wants a piano you can really right. pound on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think her husband writes an essay about him or something. Uh, and non, it doesn't mention his name. It says, you know, some guys want this really like, you know, like it's a battle uh, playing this thing. And um, it's almost as if they're going deaf. And of course, right. Beethoven was going deaf. Right. Anyway, Beethoven, complicated guy, has a lot of personal problems. Uh, and believe it or not, hires Nanette in 1817 to manage his household. I don't really get this, okay? She's a businesswoman. She's got this whole business going on. She's running her own family. And she's responding to letters uh, from Beethoven about mending socks, ordering groceries, and stuff like that. Now, she was no looker, according to the sketch that's in the New York Times, okay? She has kind of sharp angles to her face. Mm -hmm. And apparently Beethoven had his whole bevy of followers, you know, Mm -hmm. society ladies, uh, you know, ready to throw themselves at him. Uh, So, but they had this long-running uh, kind of uh, friendship and relationship uh, that makes me think this would be a fabulous movie. Can't you just imagine developing this character, throwing in a little sexual tension just for the fun of it, having her torn, being so devoted to this guy, but he doesn't really care. He's just, you know, whatever. Sophia Coppola, are you listening? I think this is a winner. Nanette Stryker. Yeah. All right. Well, as long as we get a cut, I'm, uh, I'm all for it. Um, well, there was an article in the Times about um, a series of articles almost, apropos of nothing, about shows. Apropos of nothing? About shows. Seriously? This whole year is about shows being canceled. Shows being canceled and so previews. This series is about, you want to hear about canceled shows right. that never got to Broadway. Right. Here are some stories. Right, you have a point. But I mean, it's also it's a segue from what you're talking about, because you have an idea that uh, may succeed or may result in a show that gets canceled. Most of these ideas sounded pretty dopey anyway, but... They're in preview. Well, you know, they weren't all fabulous. I mean, they're kind of funny. Uh, there's one about uh, Bob Dylan was uh, engaged to write a musical with Archibald McLeish, uh, who was considered the <laughs> greatest a match poet. Made in I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, Archibald McLeish being this sort of ivory tower, uh, gilded academic, uh, very serious poet, and uh, Bob Dylan being Bob Dylan, uh, the, the guy who put them together, uh, Stuart Ostrow, was part of the team that put them together. Stuart Ostrow was one of the producers of 1776. And the thought was that, uh, this is Stuart's thought, um, we would get the oldest poet of note and the youngest poet of note to work together. And that would be McLeish and, what did they write? and Dylan. Uh, they were going to uh, do a musical based on the... Um, the Devil and uh, Daniel Webster, and which is interesting because it's obviously it's a, I think it's a poem, right? Or is it a story? I guess it's a story, and there's an opera on it, but no one had done a musical, and they thought it was time to do a musical on it. And um, 
it couldn't have worked out uh, worse, uh, honestly. Apparently, they didn't click. Dylan and uh, <laughs> Lisa didn't, didn't click. And what they remember about it, those involved reported about it, uh, according to Ostrow, um, who won four Tonys, I am informed, uh, in his memoirs, says basically what happened was uh, Dylan was invited to McLeish's home. They were going to work together. And McLeish started going over all this material. And Dylan just drank brandy until he passed out. Uh, so it didn't really gel. And okay. uh, he was, um, uh, he said something kind of mean about Dylan. Um, uh, what's that word, poser? I never know what poser means, a poser. Um, didn't think much of Dylan at all, though. And he thought he was a... Uh, like a fake. Like yeah. He's just... Uh... Yes, that's right. A mono... Here's what he calls him. A monosyllabic dolt. Dolt. And okay, yeah. so you got more? Yeah, okay. So that didn't work out. So uh, did it ever get anywhere? Did it... No. Did it, it, it no. didn't even... No, but Dylan... Did they write it, anything? They didn't, no. They tried... Dylan, okay. used, Dylan kept a couple songs, put them on one of his albums. Okay. The album was what we did, so you have that. Uh, whether it tells all right, anything so or next. Okay. Then there was the... Um, play, uh, well, this is one uh, that didn't go, The Baker's Wife. The Baker's Wife was a show which uh, uh, was based on sort of a French film, La Femme du Boulanger, uh, and it was uh, recommended by... That means by... The Baker's Wife. <laughs> there, I, I can't help. Sometimes I just slip into French, I don't even realize I'm doing it. Uh, and it was recommended by Neil Simon uh, to Stephen Schwartz, who, who wrote Pippin, among other things. Uh, and they decided to make a film. And this is the, um, not film, a musical. And the, the central thing that goes on here is there's a woman in town who uh, falls in love with a man 20 years or a senior. And uh, this is considered inappropriate. And the town reacts to it. Uh, no, and, no, no, and no, no. Of... She marries the baker. Okay? Oh, 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 that's right. I'm sorry. I got she it. marries the baker. You're absolutely right. I got it wrong. For the, the basic reasons. The man okay. Who's older. And right. he's somewhat older, yeah. right? And mm -hmm. they seem perfectly happy, except that, you know, she, she falls in love with the a younger guy. You're right, you're right. I got it right. backwards. Got it backwards. And so then, uh, you know, you have all the usual tension. All the okay? usual tension, right. And, uh, yeah, I don't know how I screwed that up. Most happy fella. But it, it is kind of like the most happy fella. What's interesting is that they um, originally had uh, Zero Mostel in mind to play the older man. Uh, he wouldn't do it. And what they did instead, this is, I thought it was fascinating, uh, they decided that they would hire Chaim Topol. And the re interesting reason that's interesting is Chaim Topol was a guy who played Fiddler in the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Uh -huh. And uh, he turned out to be a disaster. Uh, right, because he was supposed to be elderly, homely, right. you know, and he didn't think of et cetera. That way. And he was playing it as Mr. Sex Symbol. Right. And of course, he's also considered terrible because the person telling the story is his co-star, Patty Lapone, and she doesn't think she was terrible. I'm sure she wasn't. So, but the funniest uh, she points part about the finger it is, at him. yeah, what is what? The song Meadowlark. The metal, why is that funny? I've always, I will say this: you hear Meadowlark. Every time I hear it, I go, "Why are they making a big deal out of this song?" I've never understood that. I've now always I know. hated that. A lot song. of people don't. But it will be introduced. You'll be listening on the Broadway and they'll say channel, this is it. and they'll say this. they'll even sometimes during an interview and the guy and they say, "Well, you know, the question will be, what's your go-to audition piece?" Uh, right, you're right. It's Meadow an audition. Lark. It's an audition. Song. And I'm like, so I I can't. It bores me to tears. It's seven okay? minutes long. It's seven minutes long. And, and I think uh, I but but musicians singers love it. They're devoted to it. 
Lapone was devoted to it. It was her big number. And part of what goes on in this production is... um, David Merrick hated it. it. He's he's the producer, right? His idea to fix the show. So is to take it out. Right. So what he does is he asks... The, uh, the those in charge to give him the uh, copy of the music, not a copy, the original, the the one version they had of the music for the song, and he put it in his briefcase, and, and he, he got on a train and left town. Right, which meant they had to do the show without. So anyway, then there's a the long song. tug of war. The, yeah. the song's in, the song's out. Yeah. Um, Didn't but work out. You can see how it would bring a production to yeah. a halt. Yes, and um, ultimately you know, there was a successful production a few years ago. At the Paper Mill Playhouse, at least according to Stephen yeah, Schwartz. And that, I guess there was one supposed to open in London. Yes. And it, this, this last this, spring this or last, next spring or something. Of course, it's not there. So. Okay. And the final show that they're, they were talking about here was a show that was going to be based on a Bertolt Brecht uh, piece of material. Now, there's, there's something... Um, Challenging. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. And uh, musical comedy written all over. Yeah. It, well, right? Bertolt Brecht is an acquired taste, and uh, but people take him seriously. Although Sondheim said, uh, I, I kind of doubt it. He had a little bit of reaction the way you did. They got Steve Sondheim involved, and Jerome Robbins involved, and ultimately they got John Guare involved, and that's when it really started taking shape. Leonard Bernstein was involved from the beginning. Sondheim kind of wrote some songs and then kind of bowed out. He said, "This is going nowhere." They got Lieber and Stoller, who wrote modern uh, hits. To work with Bernstein, and uh, and yet that didn't work. But the real bottom line here, as is sometimes is the case, is that um, uh, it's tough to work with Jerome Robbins. Um, this too was a show in which they had Zero Mostel involved for a short time, but uh, they credit John Guare with straightening it out, and they blame Jerome Robbins for driving everybody absolutely crazy. So the story is that everything you read about Jerome Robbins, and even in this article. Uh, Sondheim says he got Jerome Robbins involved because to him, Jerome Robbins was the one genius he met in the theater. Everyone thought he was a genius. He was the genius of West Side Story, and everybody hated him. And and uh, this thing uh, went to ground uh, there, too. Not easy to work with. Right. And apparently, the, uh, a lot of those people never spoke again or, yeah. well, you know, yes. and don't want to talk about it even right. today. No. Uh, yeah, but uh, Sondheim had a career. So things can go sour. Okay, but there was this. This was encouraging. Uh, the Times had apropos of nothing. I like to say uh, they're touting an HBO show um, under the headline "What's So Funny About Scaffolding." There's a show called "How to" with John Wilson, in which he tackles various subjects like scaffolding, and as they say here, documentarian finds the humor in mundane subjects. And I guess we'll have to look this up and have to watch it, uh, although I know you're kind of looking at me skeptically. But apparently, he explores uh, the, the question, why is New York City and probably many other cities filled with scaffolding all the time? And it turns out it's because there was an accident some time ago when somebody got killed because something fell off a building under construction. And there was, in his view, an overreaction that created an $8 billion industry, which allows people to put up scaffolding all, all over the place. It seems to stay up forever. Exactly. His point is, it's supposed to be temporary, but it's never temporary. It's just always there. And you have, even though you have this temporary thing, it becomes a permanent part of the cityscape. And he uses it as a metaphor for the way people live their lives. They're constantly doing things that are, quote, temporary. Wilson even refers to his last job as something he was going to do temporarily. Then he realized five years in, he was still doing it. 
And often that becomes your light. The stuff you're doing temporarily is the scaffolding that's constantly in the frame. And uh, anyway, I can't take it much farther because I haven't seen it. But uh, no, it sounds but pretty it, interesting. As a metaphor, it's pretty interesting. It is pretty interesting. Because yes. it's something you that has a good rationale to begin with. Good structure. Yes. You know, to yeah. for safety. Right. But at a certain point, it's not necessary, but you just don't bother to undo it. And, it just and you're still paying the price and for it. it. And, still over, and it overtakes everything. It becomes part of the landscape. And not an attractive part. No. So get your scaffolding down, people. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So... You you made me read this article. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. New front opens in war between neighbors. Who invented borscht? Mm. Mm. So this goes back to the idea that um, the Soviet Union, all right, becomes sort of synonymous with Russian, right? right? We think that anything happening in the Soviet Union mm-hmm. was Russian. Right. But Russia is only one part of the Soviet Union, and there are all these other cultures, which doesn't really occur to us. We think they're all Russian. Right. But it turns out that the Ukrainians feel they invented borscht, that is to say, beet soup. Okay, and they have towns named after it. Right. That was, right. That, and, that's pretty good uh, proof, I think. And for some reason, it is important to them that people understand it's not Russian. The Russians didn't start eating borscht until recently, like the 18th century, maybe the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, it, it says here in the article, it spread widely in central Russia starting in the late 18th century because the soup was easily made in large batches served by the czarist military. Later, it became a staple in cafeterias in Soviet factories. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's obviously, you know, people in Russia have been consuming it, but it comes from the Ukraine, mm-hmm. all right? And uh, for some reason, uh, the Ukrainians are trying to get it proclaimed by UNESCO as an intangible part of U- Ukraine's cultural heritage. I suppose that must have some economic uh, reasons to do that. Yeah. Okay. Well. Now you have, I've never eaten borscht. Okay. This because, is stunning to me. Well, because I've eaten a lot of things. All well, right? you don't like beets. Um, I don't like beets and it's only because, well, two reasons. Number one, when I was growing up, my mother served Harvard beets from a can. Mm-hmm. And that is those little purple cubes mm-hmm. in some kind of syrupy thing mm-hmm. heated up. It's awful. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was punishment. Right. Plus, uh, one night I was at the Cranberry Inn yeah. with my grandmother. Yeah. And I had a brand new dress on. And the waiter went by, bumped into me, and spilled beets all over my brand new dress. So, and I had to be eight years old or something when that happened. So that was goodbye to beets for me. Mm. So, and plus the color of borscht. I mean, borscht is made different ways, but some versions is kind of hot pink. I'm not looking for food that's hot pink. No, listen, I don't don't eat borscht. My dad would eat borscht and, you know, he'd buy it in a glass jar as one does. 
and put sour cream with it in cold borscht. And I recall saying to him, uh, how can you do that, really? It looks, it smells so unappetizing. And he says to me, well, I just grew up eating borscht. He said, the truth is, at one point, I said to my father, this would be my grandfather, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure I love borscht. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure borscht is really that good. Who was Russian? Uh, uh, Your was, grandfather was, was Russian. from Russia. So my father says to his father, you know, I, I don't think borscht is very good. And uh, I don't think it tastes good. And uh, his, his father said to him, really? You think borscht is bad? Have you ever eaten shav? And okay. So shav yeah. is made, it's also called green borscht. Yeah. Okay. And it's made with sorrel. Yeah, it's made, right. made out of soil leaves. Soil okay. leaves, right. All right. But well, it, also the stems. Right. Let's not leave out the stems. Okay, fine. Okay, so I, so I Googled it. Yeah. And I came across a recipe that was preceded by this statement for cold shav. Right. Nothing revives and refreshes in a heat wave like ice cold shav. Really? And guess who wrote the article? Who? Gabriel Hamilton. Oh, you're kidding me. Okay. Oh, my God. Owner of Prune, New York oh City. Oh, my God. Uh, who's a terrific comes... cook, terrific writer. Oh, my God. Um, That's crazy. And I mean, uh, even local my... Pennsylvania girl. Or even my grandfather. What my grandfather Listen, point to... my... if Gabriel says it's good, it's got to be good. All right? We should get over this. I don't know where the hell you find sorrel, but uh, well, my, my you got to grow it or something. What I was saying to my father was quit the complaining... When I grew up, we had to boil sorrel leaves and eat chav, and it was awful. So this is uh, this you shouldn't complain. Some you? people say it's not awful. <sighs> okay. Have you ever you ever seen this food eaten? Have you ever seen it offered? Have you ever seen it on a menu? You know, I haven't been hanging out at many Russian Jewish restaurants oh, in my life man. so much as you have. So well, you'll get um, a chance. You know, I'll make but, a point uh, of it. Yeah. I should also mention that this week in the New York Times Magazine section, Hamilton had an article about making an onion tart, like a classic French recipe that she learned uh, uh, from Andre Soltner, um, uh, the uh, great chef and uh, owner of Lutece, mm-hmm. the famous French restaurant mm-hmm. in New York City for so many years. Mm-hmm. And uh, as part of her celebration of the 20th anniversary of her restaurant, Prune, they were having different... Um, you know, days or whatever, uh, devoted to uh, various chefs that uh, she admired mm-hmm. and uh, learned from, uh, whether she'd actually met them or not. And uh, she, they actually got Soldner, who's 87, to show up and uh, cook with them. And her whole staff, it was all women, mm-hmm. okay? And he had never worked with any women in a kitchen. Wow. It just was not done hmm. uh, during his career and he said to her this was great i'm so glad i got to do this wow. never worked with women before it was great and uh you know got the chance isn't that the article that you told me that she mentioned uh, the recipe from the philadelphia chef that uh... mark vetri was one of the chefs who uh came yeah. and she refers to him he's from philadelphia yeah. she refers to him as her brother from another mother oh really and he came up with his own, with flour he had milled himself, yeah. okay, to make the pasta for the chicken liver and uh, ragu pasta sauce 
that we have eaten at his uh, restaurant. And you Osteria. make, and you now make yourself. Well, I make a version. Yeah, uh, it's it's probably nothing like his. Oh, it's a lot. But like it, it to some extent satisfies our craving. Yeah, our uh, chicken legs. But so that it was can't have enough chicken. Legs. You know, I mean, Hamilton knows shit. You know, I mean, knows stuff. Most stuff, yes. All right, well, listen, I won't dwell much on this because I don't think you're that fascinated. And I'm not sure I am either, but it's a little interesting. And that is, uh, there's an article about, uh, the headline is, Football Gets a Dose of High School Math. It's about uh, an effort to bring sort of uh, sabermetrics, if you will, uh, quantitative analysis to football. And you might say, well, I'm sure there is that kind of thing. Uh, You see the NFL talking about using Surface Pro and guys have computers all the time. Well, it's not really that way. I mean, baseball is that way, you know, to the extent that people are complaining about the analytics ruining the game, and maybe it isn't, maybe it isn't. But uh, analytics have only a half a foot in the door with football, which seems strange because it's such a strategy game, but it's it's also a big macho game. Well, because they're using the chessboards, Dan. They don't need... The computers—they've got the chessboards. Well, there's—it's gone—it's so clearly the other way in football. There's a rule against using uh, contemporaneous or real-time analytics at a football game to uh, create strategy. There's a rule against doing that in the NCAA for college football and in the NFL. But But that makes sense. Why? Because if you're in a chess match, yeah. should you be able to sit there and just uh, Google the it's next move? It's not a chess match. It's football. It is a chess match. But there's so, so much other... It, it seems silly to me because they're using a lot of analytics in preparing for the game. So use, all right. So let them prepare. Like everybody prepares for every in, endeavor. Right. And But when push comes to Listen, shove, I, in the moment, they need to use their brain. Okay? Yeah. Okay, look, I don't care. I don't care. But the articles about this fellow... Uh, who's named George Mahoney, who is working as an assistant helping out a school called Matter Day Prep. Uh, it's a big uh, football team in the uh, Catholic School League. Uh, the head coach is named Dino Mangiero. He once played in the NFL, so he doesn't come What with part of the country? Quantitative background. Oh, it's in Middletown, New Jersey. And uh, uh, Mahoney uh, is barely an assistant. He's like He sits in the press box with his computer. He did create a product that he sells uh, called no Ed's kidding. Varsity. No and, kidding. Uh, and he's using his own product on the he's computer. Leading these children astray. Well, here's okay. what's funny. So, uh, look, I can tell you where the changes are made. It has to do with the kicking game as much as anything else. Um, but uh, Or where he's inclined to do things differently and doing a strategy which is considered unconventional. But what's interesting to me is that Mahoney actually was the head coach at another school called St. Peter's High School in Staten Island in 2018. And he had the chance then to employ all his newfangled ideas and advanced analytics and to do things quite differently. And it looked different. They would, they would uh, not punt when you're supposed to punt. They would not go for a field goal. They would go for things on fourth down. All kinds of stuff that looked different. Looked counterintuitive. Yeah. It just didn't look like football. Yeah. And what happened was he got fired. And he got fired. He was coaching a team. And he had prepared everybody. Mm-hmm. He said, look, you know, we all got to stick together. We're going to do things a little differently. And he was taking a team that was quite challenged. And they were five and eight or something when he got fired. And they said to him, and the people fired him. The school administrator said, we're not firing you because the team's not winning. But, you know, the parents were complaining that they're not playing football 
like they're used to seeing. The kids are not, in, you know, it doesn't seem like they're just being, t- they're supposed to be toughened up by football. It's supposed to be a physical challenge. It's supposed to be, you know, this entire consuming experience. And instead, it feels like there's some kind of tinkering going on. And that's what's really driving the experience as opposed to the kids being forced to sort of buckle down and meet the physical challenge. He got fired because it was unconventional and what he was doing was not consistent with the ethos of football, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, but it sounds like that they were frustrated uh, because he's just moving them around like chess pieces. Exactly. They're, they're not really engaged in the game. But they're engaged or not. They're not. They can't look at it and say we're succeeding or not succeeding because we set that extra hour in the weight room. They weren't. You know, having that kind of experience. Very interesting to me. In any event, uh, so Mahoney is working, sitting in the stands, giving some advice, whispering in the ear of uh, this coach of Matter Day. They've had some success, but I don't, you know, I don't know that it's going to take anything over. Um, it's just interesting to me that the, the, the football ethos is so different from baseball, the macho aspect, if you will, and therefore they're just not open to, uh, to having the analytics take over the game. Uh, so anyway, the, the final article, I think you have it there, called Bye Bye Pumpkin Pie. Bye yeah. Bye Pumpkin Pie. <laughs> a challenge. A yeah, challenge. you know, I mean, it's uh, the usual um, Wall Street Journal terrible recipe. Well, let me, let me just set the stage here. Let me frame it. What the article says, you shouldn't make pumpkin pie anymore. We have a better what, French dessert. What are they dessert. talking about? Okay. No, nobody well, has a get problem the with pumpkin let pie. Let me get the thesis out first before you attack right, it. They're right, saying right. we have something better than pumpkin pie. It's a silky. I think they use the word silky, right? Silky dessert. One taste of this silky souffléed dessert and you'll never go back. Never go back. And they show, show you plating this pumpkin dessert. Maybe time to out. The Thanksgiving classic in favor of a French recipe. Right. Oh, them's fighting words. It says it's a flamouse, is it not? Yes, <laughs> flamouse. Well, traditionally, flamouse yeah. turns out is apple. Right. Yeah, it's so made with it's apples, and it's basically an apple flan kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, apples, eggs. Right. Milk, flour, a little sugar, throw it in the oven, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, presto changeo right, so turns doing, into dessert. Now it's pumpkin. Okay. Now it's so, pumpkin. first of all, let me just say the picture here is not engaging, all right? <laughs> uh, it does not look that attractive. It's just a pile of uh, pumpkin-colored uh, stuff. Pumpkin flamouse. Also, yes. they have a recipe that doesn't call for milk. It calls for... Two cups of heavy cream. Yeah. Okay. Which, uh, I, you know, the whole thing sounds like uh, heaviness, not silky souffledness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, that's what you're looking for, right? It, at the end of this recipe, it says, must be served right away. Okay. <laughs> you have <laughs> right? to get up in the middle so, of the meal and get right. the. Uh, yeah. So that's what you're looking for on yeah. Thanksgiving Day right. is things that have to be served right. at a particular moment right. because you're juggling the whole right. time. And well, this thing will be a little bit at room temperature. You know, I mean, that's the challenge of it all. No one is looking for a dessert that has to be boom. Uh, Right at the particular Listen, moment. The so truth is, what we both know. I don't get it. Even if you wanted to, you could not depart from the traditional 
as long as you have Sadie by your side. It's going to be the staples and traditional which have served us well. well I love pumpkin pie. There's nothing better okay. for breakfast the day after Thanksgiving than leftover pumpkin well, pie. I don't think the flamboos would be the same. Unless it's maybe leftover apple pie. The problem here is, I, I defy, say, any, say to any cook, yeah. male, female, whoever, yeah. okay, who's uh, taking the charge on your Thanksgiving, okay, and now you're going to make a souffle yeah. at the end of this meal. Yeah. yeah. Right. Not great. great. All right. All right. So. You know, I, again, the, the Wall Street Journal is writing recipes for people bring it do to, not cook. Bring it to your attention, you know, for consideration if you want to up your game. But they can see where uh, no game. I make a here. lot of stuff with pumpkin. Pumpkin's a fun ingredient. Yeah. We've been having some delicious pumpkin bars, pumpkin soups, you know. Maybe someday when I'm not doing anything else, yeah. you can make a pumpkin souffle. But uh, Listen, I have my doubts. I'm with you, but you know, the Thanksgiving is coming up. Yeah, but Thanksgiving is, uh, you know, no challenge this year. Because? Because of COVID. Because? Because, first of all, they're saying don't invite anybody. Yeah. Okay? Well, a few I, I think it's the New York Times right. has a big article about how to handle Thanksgiving. No, no, no. Recipes for two. Oh, okay? Yeah, how to have Thanksgiving yeah. for two people. Right. Okay? And, uh, you know, so there are all kinds of. Uh, good excuses for not uh, going through all the usual Thanksgiving madness, mm. which is fun. I mean, you know, to some extent it's fun. But so it's just a uh, small turkey and Hershey bars, basically. That's a real well, thing. maybe just a turkey sandwich. Yeah. And some s'mores and <laughs> that you cook over the gas uh, range. All right. Okay, so uh, that's it a couple of weeks. We don't want to jump this season. Uh, until then, or until next week at least, this is Dan Abuha. And Tamson Granger with Tamson and Dan Read the Paper. Gobble, gobble.